Welcome to Counter Apologetics. I'm your host, Emerson Green, and today we'll be discussing God and evolution. So we'll be exploring what the discovery of evolution potentially means for religion. Is evolution evidence against theism? If so, why? Is it incompatible with Christianity, as some Christians maintain? What is the conceptual landscape vis-a-vis evolution and theism? As in, what is the range of potential options available to a religious believer when it comes to evolution? We also briefly discuss evolutionary evil as evidence against God's existence, and argue that the acceptance of evolution does not dissolve all the problems that arise between evolution and theism. Accepting evolution doesn't mean you're just off the hook. But first, vibes. It's been long noted that when it comes to Christianity and evolution, The vibes are off. Before we get to the more analytic arguments from Paul Draper and Graham Oppie, I wanted to acknowledge that, prima facie, evolution does not feel like it makes for a good fit with a Christian outlook. And the long history of passionate Christian resistance to evolution, beginning in 1859 and continuing into the present, would be completely inexplicable in the absence of this fact. To account for the uncomfortable fit, We can't simply blame a literalistic misreading of Genesis, since many who do not read Genesis literally, such as ID proponents, still resist evolution nonetheless. Sigmund Freud, despite his faults, was a perceptive vibologist, and I think he might have something insightful to contribute here. Quote, Humanity, in the course of time, has had to endure from the hands of science two great outrages against its naive self-love. The first was when humanity discovered that our Earth was not the center of the universe, but only a tiny speck in a world system hardly conceivable in its magnitude. End quote. The argument from scale, which we discussed last episode, is marshaled as an insult to human vanity. We are not the center of a human-oriented world, but only a speck in an unimaginably vast cosmos. The second insult to human vanity, according to Freud, was evolution. Quote, The second occurred when biological research robbed man of his apparent superiority under special creation, and rebuked him with his descent from the animal kingdom and his ineradicable animal nature. This revaluation, under the influence of Charles Darwin, Wallace, and their predecessors, was not accomplished without the most violent opposition of their contemporaries. End quote. So the first insult was cosmological in nature. Copernicus and others figured out that the earth, and thereby humankind, was not at the center of the world. This consistently landed the scientists who promulgated this fact in a lot of trouble, and as time went on, the known universe kept getting bigger and bigger, until it could no longer be denied that we were a spatial and temporal drop in a vast ocean of space-time. Then, secondly, Freud says, there was a biological challenge to our naive self-love. Darwin found that we were not born of an act of special creation, Rather, we came about through a long evolutionary process, one which also included all of the lower animals, plants, bacteria, and of course, our primate cousins. 
The fact that human beings evolved from simpler forms of life does not disprove theism. Nonetheless, Darwin too found himself at the center of raging controversy, which continued after his death and persists to this very day. Without question, there has always been massive resistance to evolution, and it's no secret that this resistance is spearheaded by the religious. Why is this? One might be tempted to think that all the trouble lies with young earth creationism, and if we could just move beyond creationism, there would be no conflict between Christianity and evolution. But this is not true, for reasons expounded not only by Freud, but more analytically by Paul Draper and Graham Oppie. table for Christians when it comes to evolution. I see the three main options available as special creation, intelligent design, and theistic evolution, ordered from least to most plausible. And I'll be treating theistic evolution and evolutionary creation as interchangeable terms. There are all sorts of subdivisions within those broad conceptual regions, but those are the three major ones. Ken Ham and the Young Earth Creationists believe that God created human life, more or less in its current form, relatively recently. Michael Behe and the ID proponents accept the old age of the Earth, the common ancestry of life, at least many of them do, and even that natural selection plays at least a marginal role in evolution, but they think that irreducible complexity shows that God must have designed some parts of nature, and that he intervened in some fashion. Natural processes are not entirely responsible for evolutionary history. Evolution is not unguided. Theistic evolutionists, Francis Collins most prominent among them, believe that God elected to bring about human beings through evolution by natural processes. God didn't use special creation or intelligent design. God opted to use evolution alone to bring about human beings. As George Murphy puts it, evolution is God's way of creating. It's not a very popular view, but it's a coherent view and easily makes for the best fit with modern science. Again, there are subdivisions within these categories. For instance, there are old earth creationists, in addition to young earthers. There are theistic evolutionists who believe in teleological laws of nature, in addition to the known physical laws. And there are theistic evolutionists who think God simply decided to use natural selection. No doubt there are significant disagreements within these three camps, but I think special creation, ID, and theistic evolution exhaust the major options. Did God intervene in a miraculous act of special creation, with natural processes playing only a marginal role? Is there a marriage of divine action and natural processes, in other words, some sort of guided evolution? Or did God use entirely natural processes to bring about his creation? These three general alternatives are not all equally plausible. Creationism is almost certainly false. The arguments for ID are awful. The minority position the most scientifically literate position, is far and away the best option, which is probably why it's the least popular option. I think one major reason for that is the most scientifically defensible position is not necessarily the most theologically defensible. I'll leave that issue to Christians. Evolution is compatible with theism, but evolution is nonetheless evidence against theism. 
This is true even if you take some sort of theistic evolution, evolutionary creation route. the fact that humans evolved evidence that favors naturalism over theism. In his 1997 debate with William Lane Craig, Paul Draper explains, quote, If naturalism is true, then the only plausible theory of how complex life could come about is through evolutionary means. So if naturalism is true, evolution pretty much has to be the case. On theism, however, evolution isn't beforehand a sure bet. God could have created things through evolution, or he could have created each species independently, or he could have created certain basic types and allowed for evolutionary change within those basic types, or he could have created everything by evolution except for one species, like humans. There are a lot of different possibilities on theism. So while evolution is compatible with theism, it doesn't prove that theism is false, it is no more likely on theism than a variety of other alternatives, alternatives that are ruled out by naturalism. Thus, evolution is more to be expected on naturalism than on theism and so is more evidence favoring naturalism over theism. End quote. On naturalism, there really is no other way for humans to come about other than evolution by natural processes. But on theism, God has options. Evolution isn't beforehand a sure bet. God could have used evolution to create life, but he also could have used many other methods, methods which are impossible on naturalism. So the fact that humans and all life came about through evolution by purely natural processes is not surprising on naturalism, there's no alternative. But it is relatively surprising on theism. For theists, evolution may or may not be true. For naturalists, and not for theists, there's really only one option. And wouldn't you know it, that's the one we got. Not only is the probability of evolution diminished on theism relative to naturalism, due to what's in the cards for each view, but evolution clearly makes for a more comfortable fit with naturalism than it does with theism. Why else would the vast majority of believers reject theistic evolution? Why else would ID and special creation claim the lion's share of Christian believers, even many generations after the discovery of evolution by natural selection? Because evolution, in addition to being initially counterintuitive, insults our vanity and our naive self-love. It doesn't fit neatly with the flattering Christian image of ourselves. additional reason, as Jeff Lauder has argued, that theism and evolution don't make the best fit. Since, on theism, a mind is responsible for the creation of the physical world, which did not exist until after God created it. So theism naturally leads us to a dualistic position. But dualism is notoriously difficult to square with evolution. Lauder argues, quote, theism leads us to expect that minds are fundamentally non-physical entities, 
and therefore that conscious life is fundamentally different from non-conscious life. But this in turn would lead us to expect that conscious life was created independently of non-conscious life. That evolution is false. So the scientific fact of biological evolution is more likely on the assumption that naturalism is true than on the assumption that theism is true. End quote. So, theism plausibly leads us to dualism, since a mind, God, created the physical world. And if minds are non-physical, then that might lead us to believe that conscious life and non-conscious life are fundamentally different, and were probably created independently. But as it turns out, all forms of life came about via the same process, evolution, and were not created independently. So the scientific fact of biological evolution is less surprising on a monistic view than it is on a dualistic view. Further, non-dualists don't have to explain how evolution produces non-physical properties or substances. Dualism and evolution are not impossible to harmonize, but it certainly creates a few unique problems. The belief that conscious life and non-conscious life are fundamentally different creates a lot of work for the dualist that others just don't have to do. I don't think that non-physical stuff was generated by the evolutionary process, so I don't have to explain how and where that happened. This is actually one of the reasons I'm less inclined to be a dualist than I otherwise would be. Believe it or not, I've grown a lot more sympathetic to dualism than I've been in the past, but the issue of making dualism fit into the evolutionary story in a sensible manner is a bit of a hang-up for me. So, in sum, A. Universal common ancestry is less surprising on views which don't carve out deep, fundamental divisions between different life forms. And B, evolution and dualism are not so easy to harmonize. So undermining creationism and intelligent design is easy enough, but how does evolution undermine more sophisticated forms of theology? For one, Draper's argument is inescapable. Evolution is evidence favoring naturalism over theism. Just due to what's in the cards for both views, the probability of evolution on theism is lower relative to naturalism. Graham Oppie's argument from naturalism offers another line of attack. As Oppie explains, quote, The naturalist does not have beliefs in anything over and above the things the theist believes in. From the standpoint of the naturalist, theistic beliefs are pure addition, and from the standpoint of the theist, naturalistic beliefs are pure subtraction. In short, naturalism is a simpler theory than theism. If there are two competing theories, and one is simpler than the other, then unless the more complex theory provides a better explanation of something than the simpler theory, one should endorse the simpler theory. End quote. In the evolutionary story, God is redundant. We have no need to appeal to God to explain the natural world at all. It all works without that hypothesis. To paraphrase Eric Steinhardt, atheism is the view that nothing of value is added by tagging God onto it. The aim of theistic evolution, or evolutionary creation, is to make theism fit with our best scientific theories. 
but it does not confer any sort of theoretical advantage. So, while a naturalist might take evolution to explain what we observe in biology, a theistic evolutionist believes roughly the same thing, plus God. If we use our razor to subtract that entity, nothing is lost. Pierre-Simon Laplace, astronomer, mathematician, and heir to Isaac Newton, presented his work on celestial bodies to the Emperor Napoleon. Napoleon reportedly said to him, You've written this large book on how the universe works, and it makes no mention of God. And Laplace replied, I had no need of that hypothesis. So there's an additional problem here. If we suppose that a designer brought about humanity using evolution by natural processes, it's not just that no theoretical advantage is gained. Everything has been changed for the worse. If an omnipotent, omniscient designer intended things to be this way, intended for the history of life to have the brutal character it has, what should we conclude about the designer? A benevolent designer, if he isn't lacking in power, would have to be lacking in skill or knowledge to explain the suffering built into the evolutionary process and nature itself. Speaking for myself, there really is no other satisfying explanation. I can only conclude that God's power or knowledge or skill in bringing about states of affairs must be severely limited. On the other hand, if he can do anything logically possible, I'm inevitably led to draw some horrible conclusions about God. If God's benevolence is to remain intact, if he's not intending to cause mass death and widespread suffering, then he must be limited in power or knowledge. If he's not lacking in either, if he is omnipotent and omniscient, then his malevolence far exceeds the most evil men in history. Out of all the possible, given all the epistemically possible um, law structures, why on earth would... Uh, a perfect being, choose one that involves, in the very creative act, such horrendous suffering. I mean, uh, I mean, if you read up, I mean, on on a bunch of these fires in Australia, it's just, it's so sad. Oh, um, it's terrible. I get frustrated when I read it. Uh, I mean, upwards. Yeah. I kid you not. The the amount of animals that are burned alive from that is actually in the the hundreds of millions, I believe. Uh, um, that, that I, I mean, I saw an article that was shared and it's like thousands of koalas. I think it's actually now in the tens of thousands of koalas that are burned alive. And, and this is just today. Uh, think about the, um, the hundreds of years, yeah. of years of things like this. Um, and that's only in Australia. I mean, I mean, five mass biological extinction events throughout the course yeah. of evolutionary history. I mean, the six that we're actively causing, yeah, it's... I mean, yeah, I, I don't know. It's just, it seems that the actual world's class of laws is one that we definitely would not expect a perfect being to create. And so the probability that uh, the, even the law structures that we have is, is quite low on the supposition that the perfect being created it, as opposed to um, a different set of law structures that give rise to a much more benign, much more flourishing... Um, process of development, um, one not involving the languishing of non, non-moral sentient agents for hundreds of millions of years. So if we took the theistic evolution route, 
which is the most scientifically defensible one on offer, we'd be multiplying entities unnecessarily, thus making the theory worse. And we'd be doing this only to further degrade the theory, since problems of evolutionary and teleological evil are so terribly onerous. In a way, the young Earth creationists have the better story. A young universe and a young Earth, humans coming on the scene almost immediately thereafter, specially created apart from other life. If young Earth creationists were correct about the facts of our world, nature would look like a blinking neon sign that read, God exists. Furthermore, there were no eons of evolutionary suffering, and it wasn't until the literal fall in the garden that nature was corrupted, spawning teleological evil. If it weren't for the obvious empirical difficulties, theirs would be the best story. And sure, accepting modern biology means that your theory isn't immediately ruled out by scientific evidence, which is a plus. But in the process, you've conceded evidence favoring naturalism, brought upon yourself evolutionary arguments from evil, as well as the argument from teleological evil, which together augment the problem of evil and turn it into something that cannot be overcome. As we've seen, a religious believer cannot avoid all philosophical problems relating to God and evolution simply by accepting the modern biological account of life. Getting off the hook is not as simple as that. But there's another angle that so far we've left alone. We should note that what is the most scientifically defensible is not necessarily the most theologically defensible, as many religious opponents of evolution will be quick to tell you. Accepting the modern biological account of life does not mean you've ducked all the philosophical or theological problems pertaining to evolution. Not only have you made significant concessions, you've also created new philosophical and theological problems that did not exist prior to your acceptance of evolution. To me, it's, it's extremely surprising under theism that a fully providential, omnibenevolent God would orchestrate this kind of bloodbath as the very means or mechanism by which creation is brought about, you know, like uh, humans and other sorts of sentient beings are brought about. Like, what kind of process? Anyway, it's, it's just very surprising to me. I'm not saying it's incompatible. You know, like, mm-hmm. those kind of inconsistency arguments are really hard to defend. Um, but on both sides, whether for or against God's existence. Um, but it does seem just extremely surprising. These are non, these are, these are moral, mere moral patients, right? They're not moral agents. Uh, and so it, it's rough. It's rough when you think about that. And just yeah. the, the profound, like, think of how protracted it is, like hundreds of millions of years of these non-human animal suffering. Like, this is the very means by which a providential God orchestrated it. It's just, it's really surprising to my mind on theism. By contrast, it doesn't seem nearly as surprising on a view where, fundamental reality is just indifferent to the flourishing and languishing of, of creatures. Uh, fundamental reality doesn't give a damn whether the pig is, is suffering, really, um, or whether there's this protected process. Uh, it just seems much more fitting in a worldview where um, there isn't such providential governance and direction from an omnibenevolent being. Um, so yeah, that, that's probably the best argument for atheism by my lights. <laughs> Thank you.
So let's take a slight detour to talk about young earth creationism in the United States. The prevalence of young earth creationism is frequently underestimated or downplayed. Fortunately, an increasing number of theists are accepting the theory of evolution. According to the University of Michigan, just over 50% of the American population now accepts that human beings evolved. Good for us. In a study published in the Journal of Public Understanding of Science, researchers found that the level of public acceptance of evolution in the U.S. is now solidly above the halfway mark. Quote, From 1985 to 2010, there is a statistical dead heat between acceptance and rejection of evolution, said lead researcher John D. Miller of the Institute for Social Research at the University of Michigan. But acceptance then surged, becoming the majority position in 2016. End quote. Corroborating these findings, a 2019 Gallup poll found that 4 out of 10 Americans believe that humans were created in their current form less than 10,000 years ago. Yet, according to William Lane Craig, young earth creationists are, quote, a very tiny minority of Christians. This is flatly untrue. Somewhere in the range of 40% of Americans hold something resembling those beliefs. According to that Gallup poll, we're talking about 130 million people in the U.S., where there are 240 million Christians total. So let's break that down a bit. Most of the young earth creationists polled were likely Christians, considering the combined number of Muslims and Jews in the U.S. doesn't reach 10 million. Plus, there are many non-young earth creationists within their ranks. This means that well over 120 million Christians, of the 240 million total, are young earth creationists, which means that more than 50% of the Christians in the United States are young earth creationists. In case you didn't catch that, the majority of Christians in the United States are young earth creationists, and it's been that way for quite a while. This is very upsetting to many believers, but it happens to be true. The admittedly slim creationist majority within the Christian community will likely falter in the coming decades. I can't imagine the number going any way but down. Even so, for the time being, the Christian population in America will be roughly equally divided on the question of whether humankind was created about 40,000 years after the invention of the flute. When I was younger, I was told by a close friend, you know, you pretty much can't be a real Christian and believe in evolution. In other words, either Christianity is true, or evolution is true. In that case, we can decisively rule out Christianity, at least the form of Christianity that my friend had in mind. My unsolicited advice to Christians is to get around to fully accepting evolution. Your children are going to find out it's true, and you're only increasing the chances that they'll leave the faith if you set up a dichotomy between accepting biological facts or accepting your religion. 
However, there's no getting away from the fact that evolution is not great news for Christianity. It would have been better for Christianity if special creation had turned out to be true. The second great insult to human vanity wasn't accepted easily, and still isn't accepted in many quarters. Remember, we only just passed the halfway mark. Evolution is evidence favoring naturalism. It's compatible with Christianity, but it wasn't exactly good news. That's all I have for you today. I have new patrons to thank. Suzanne Adams, Salaton, John Comancho, what's up John, Mark A, and David M. Thank you Suzanne, Salaton, John, Mark, and David. And of course, thank you to my Hall of Fame patrons, Phil Stillwell, Grim Frenzy, Dehydrated Myself Until Aaron Made Me Moist, Richard Crossan, Rory B. Murkowski, and Henry W. Bartholomew. And you can support this show on a per-episode basis at patreon.com counter where you can get early access to every episode and access to bonus episodes. If you don't have the money to support on Patreon, but you still want to adopt the pagan religion of millions of years, you can follow our social media on Twitter and Facebook, subscribe on YouTube, leave a five-star review, or tell your friends about the podcast. You can also subscribe to and leave a review of our sister show, Walden Pod. Our theme music was written and performed by the band Whalers. The song is called Magic Tricks and was used with permission. Additional music by Achika Nito. Thank you for joining me today. I've been Emerson Green, and I'll talk to you next time.